0: And hello to you, and welcome to the Richard Nichols Podcast, the personal development podcast series that's here to help inspire, educate, and motivate you to be the best you can be. I'm psychotherapist Richard Nichols, and today's is a bonus episode. It's an interview with Professor Sophie Scott. And if you're ready, we'll start the show. Hello. It's extra episode time. I said I'd like to continue with the idea of having some trusted people on here from time to time. And following the feedback from the episode with Dr Rada Modgill last month, I thought I'd reach out to a few other people. Like I said, the other week, it's tricky to find guests that everybody will want to hear from because there's quite a, quite a varied demographic that listen to my show. And that's why I contacted people from different ends of the academic and medical spectrum and people in between as well. And so this month, it's with Professor Sophie Scott, CBE. Sophie is a neuroscientist working at UCL University College London. She's a fellow of the Academy of Medical Sciences, has presented the Royal Institution's Christmas Lectures. She's been on multiple TV and radio programmes over the years, talking about... The neuroscience of communication and in particular laughter. She loves otters, the theatre, and people in outrageous trousers. And last week she was listed in the Queen's Birthday Honours and is now a CBE. We spoke about the good and bad of evolutionary psychology, functional water anisotropy, brain plasticity, and how to make bad jokes funnier. She is both very clever and very down-to-earth at the same time. You'll, um, you'll absolutely love her. And it was really lovely to talk to her, and I'm super grateful that she was willing and able to contribute to the podcast. So I shall press play and let you have a listen. Hello, Sophie. <laughs> Hi, Richard. Hi welcome to the show so um, for those of you who've not stumbled across Sophie Scott yet she's been in the public eye for quite a while I first saw you I think Sophie it was either a TED talk or was it no it would have been probably a TED talk and then you did the Christmas lectures although there water actually you've done quite a few TED talks thinking about it because there's been some TEDx stuff as well but yeah you've I've done, done
1: TEDx as well only, only one TED talk yeah
0: (laughs) what's your elevator pitch when somebody says hey what do you do
1: I say I study how humans communicate with each other primarily with their voices and how our brains make that happen and how it can go wrong
0: I was thinking of you recently because there was this there was this meme that got popular and it was about this toy, this Ben Ten toy. It was a wristwatch thing that you plug something into and it, it makes a noise. And it either says, depending on what you're thinking about, Green Needle or Brainstorm. Did you see that audio I did that not. clip? No. <laughs> oh you'd love it. Oh it's 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 amazing <laughs> because all it is is just a sound a little toy that makes the makes it say brainstorm. Yeah. But it sounds like green needle. Yeah. Depending on what you're thinking about. And it did get it it got quite popular. It was from this, this this YouTube review of this toy that this guy did. And it reminded me of the Laurel and Yanni thing, but that was yeah. all about frequencies.
1: The Laurel Yanny thing was more complicated than that, because I didn't hear Laurel or Yanny, I heard something else again. And I think one of the things that um That demonstrated was it was more to do with your expectations and your familiarity with words and accents. So Laurel and Yanni, one of those isn't even a word for British English speakers, particularly. I think in some places it's a name. A lot of what happens when we perceive anything, and you see this in the visual system, you see it in the auditory system, it is as almost as much to do with what you expect to hear as it is to do with what's actually there. So everything you perceive it's your brain's best guess of what's going on. And that's partly based on the information your brain's getting from what's out there. And it's partly based on what your brain thinks is likely to be out there. So if you encounter something that's highly unpredictable or where there's a lot of ambiguity. So do you remember that fuss about the dress? Is it black and gold? Is it white and blue? Mm -hmm. Um, that was the same thing it was very kind of it was just one photo and people did see very different things in it but that turned out to be because of assumptions people often make about the the lighting of the room so once you start to pull it apart you find that it's not really it's nothing unusual it's just a very strong example of this very powerful effect that everything you experience is all the time a combination of these factors
0: i read a quote um If the brain was simple enough for us to understand, we wouldn't be smart enough to be able to understand it.
1: I think there is some truth to that. So, I mean, I've been working in this area for 30 years. It's 30 years since I started my PhD next week. And it is striking to me how some developments have been extraordinary in that time, but a lot of other stuff is kind of... just feel like we're just still running around in circles a little bit. And I think that's partly because... When we try and study the brain, there's a very good book by Matthew Cobb about this, about kind of people's imagination of the brain, what people take the brain to be, what metaphors they use to understand the brain, what tasks and paradigms we use to try and pull the brain apart. And the more I'm in the area, the more I think we almost need to be more like biologists and just say, what is it like? Let's try and describe it. Let's not try and fractionate it with our clever tricks, because the brain the brain doesn't care about your experiment <laughs> you know it will find some other way to surprise you so that to me has been um that's been a sort of an interesting development we now have for example these brain imaging techniques that let us just look at snapshots of the brain in action and i find that if you do quite naturalistic tasks with people in that context then a picture does start to emerge so i don't think that you know often what we talk about when we talk about the brain it's really what we're talking about is our our working metaphor for what the brain is and often that's a a particular kind of experiment that we use to ask the questions
0: yeah d- different cultures have um different words sometimes like there are some cultures where the word for mind is the same as it is for brain mm. and we tend to think of them as, as different the brain is the gray stuff and the mind is maybe what the brain what the grey stuff, all that stuff i say gray stuff but it's mostly white you know it's what that creates or at least Again, it, it's more metaphor than anything. And I remember uh, when I, I wrote a book and in it, I, this was a few years ago, and maybe I feel a bit wiser nowadays, but I made a quote that said, well, the mind, the mind is the brain. You know, stop thinking that it's something separate. Your mind is your brain. Take control of your mind by taking control of your brain. And I look at that now and think, oh, I'm not so sure. You know, is is our brain the, the stuff, the organic matter, but our mind is what we perceive it to be?
1: I think... Um... It's a good question. I suppose one of the things that I'm always struck by is how much more there is to what your brain does than the stuff we tend to be aware of. And often when we talk about mind, we sort of mean stuff we have some sense of, some feeling of, you know, what's going on, what we can describe. There are very crude differences in your brain in terms of what you have more or more or less awareness of. So if I'm talking to you now... I'm aware of my perception of you, I'm aware of sort of what I want to say to you, what you've just said to me, I'm kind of, the conversation is what it feels like to me is happening. but There's loads of other stuff that's going on that makes this possible, that I have almost no insight into or control over. So I, the postural reflexes that keep me sitting in the chair are under brain control, brainstem control, but um, I have no, that's why I'm not just falling straight onto the floor, neither are you, but I have no real control over that. And a lot of the stuff that started happening as soon as we started to talk to each other, we start to align our breathing and our speech rate. And I have no real sense of doing that. So very, very crudely, a lot of the stuff to do with sort of sensory motor control, the really basic stuff that makes any of it possible, we don't have a great deal of insight into. Whereas the stuff that matters in terms of the, the content of the conversation, I mean, it still doesn't mean to say we're doing it accurately, but we have more of a sort of sense of that. Now Nick Chater's recently written a book where he's argued that often that that kind of sense is illusory. Uh he his his idea is that the mind is is sort of flat that just as our brains fill in for perception our brains also fill in for the mind. But I still think that that means that it's always a it's a subset of what's going on in the brain that falls into what feels like the mind. Mm. But the brain is what's supporting all of it anyway we know that if you have damage to your brain you can have highly selective influences both on your what you're able to to perceive and able to do but also elements of how you're able to think about those things so there is it's all resting on the gray and white stuff it's it's Mm.
0: the squidgy bit matters but it's doing more i'm quite interested in the white stuff as a as a psychotherapist when I, when I first became interested in therapy, the narcissist in me said, so how can I get my voice heard? Oh, yeah, I'll specialize in hypnosis. That's what I'll do. So, yeah, you can you can talk to me for 20 minutes, but then you've got to listen to me talk to you for 20 minutes. And, and I'm aware of my narcissism. And uh, although I still do quite a lot of hypnosis when people ask me to, I'm always fascinated by the results that it gets because and I don't think this has been studied to any great degree, and I've done some digging around trying to find it, my my ideas are, because I, I still sit on the fence between hypnosis being state and non-state, whether it's just a set of, you know, is this just expectation or is there a little bit more to it than that? Yeah. And, and I think there is a little bit more to it, but we know from so many studies about myelin and how certain emotions and certain um, mindsets that you can get into accelerate learning tremendously. And I, I do wonder if, that if we can figure out how, you can't just inject myelin into the brain and go, right, now you're a super learner. We've got to try and find a way of making the the brain learn at as better rate as it can. Uh, And the only way we've got at the minute is with enthusiasm. It's with passion into the topic, into the subject. And sadly, that's not always there. How do we, so do you know how we can make myelin?
1: What I still don't have a good understanding of, and I was reading a paper just about this the other day, so this is a paper looking at perceptual learning in older adults and younger adults, and they were specifically asking questions about, I'm sorry, this is just an awful set of words, they were looking at functional anisotropy. And functional anisotropy, all that refers to is how water molecules move in the brain and it's a very useful way of using MRI techniques to actually ask questions about the integrity of these white matter tracts, this is where you see the myelination. So you're looking at what you're looking at is the movement of water molecules and the water molecules move completely freely as they do in like in a glass of water that's complete anisotropy and the less anisotropy there is the more they're moving in tubes i.e the more they're moving along white matter tracts. So you can use it as an index of for example, if somebody has a traumatic brain injury, which tends to twist the brain around and can cause horrible damage to the, the structural integrity of white matter, you can see that with functional anisotropy. You can use it to track the connectivity in the brain, where there are these connections. But in this study, they were using it to actually look at changes within it that are associated with learning. And they found that in the older brains, that was what was happening. So the argument was in the younger brains, Learning is more dependent on uh, gray matter stuff like dendritic connections being made within gray matter, whereas in the older brains, the learning was more associated with some sort of improvement in the structure of the white matter. It opens a lot of possibilities if there are these interesting ways that the, the structural integrity of white matter, which of course dependent on myelination, actually is something that can change and it's associated with learning, but particularly in the older brain, how is that happening? What are the mechanisms? I would love to know more about that.
0: Absolutely. Because I've been trying to learn the guitar for about 10 years. I'm dreadful, you know, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely awful, but it takes repetition. So much repetition. Now, if there's a way say for dealing with uh, stroke rehabilitation that we we can accelerate that, uh, that would be amazing, mm. and uh, I, was, I was looking at some studies last year, in because I produced there was a a conference keynote uh, thing that I did, and I was looking at some some studies into how stroke rehabilitation used to be. If somebody lost one side of their body, then they had to re, had to learn how to use the other side because hey, your mm. dominant side is gone. You've got to learn how to use your left hand now and that's been changed in the last few years to go no 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 <laughs> you need to relearn and rem- your brain needs to remember how to use your dominant hand again yeah. and that's really in the in, in in the last few years that we've gone even even in, in real aged brains you can still grow it you can still learn stuff you've just got to strap your other arm to or so that you don't use it
1: exactly that there's a really striking thing it's called constraint based therapy and you stop it, people yeah. from being able to use the limb that still works because if you let that limb do everything it will adapt very quickly i broke my right arm a few years ago and in a couple of days i was able to apply like liquid eyeliner with my left arm but the um the argument is isn't just that adaptation happens but it starts to suppress even more yeah. The brain area that is associated with the control of the arm that you've now got damage in. So you make the existing damage worse by kind of starting to dominate it. So you, it's very counterintuitive. You have to literally strap up the arm people want to use because it still works and force them to use the damaged side. And it, it does work. It's quite extraordinary. And I think it also, when it, I mean, you mentioned something there, it is very striking. One of the things that is almost it's like a working definition of the symptoms of a stroke is that the symptoms are worst at onset of stroke or immediately afterwards. And even if it's a very profound stroke and even if it's lead to very, very serious consequences, there will be some recovery of function. So the plasticity is there and sometimes that's around what the doctors use the term, the infarct, the damaged area. You can get peri-infarct reorganization that starts to support, a, you know, recovery of function. Or the opposite side of the brain starts to get engaged in it. So that's an argument for a very lateralised function, like speech production and perception, which is highly lateralised in the human brain. For most people, this is stuff that lives on the left side of the brain. There's evidence that it's the right side of the brain that starts to pick up function. It's very interesting to actually think about what that must mean in practice. But that's it sort of suggests that there is some profound plasticity in the right side of the brain that is now starting to do something entirely different to enable you to do something you used to be able to do
0: it just goes to show that you don't know what you don't know there, there is always more to learn and every time you learn something about whether it's neuroscience or, or just about the the, the matter of our, our organism as soon as you learn something you realize there's still a hell of a lot more to learn <laughs>
1: And I think the thing that is kind of staggering about human brains is that that plasticity, it's one of the things that is dramatically different about humans and their behaviour. A lot of what makes humans very successful, I mean, we can live more or less everywhere. There are very few places on land where you don't find human communities living because we adapt. And we adapt because we can solve problems and we can cope with different situations. We're not fixed to particular environments. And that's the case because of our brains. Our brains are unbelievably plastic. I mean, even under lockdown, how quickly people adapted to that. Mm. And suddenly you could hardly imagine how you'd lived any other way. That is all down to brain plasticity. And it's a lifelong process. It gets, the processes may change in terms of the implementation as we get older, but this is not something that is finished by the time your brain is largely fully myelinated in your early 20s. So it's a... I don't think we give humans enough credit for this ability to learn and to adapt is itself an absolutely extraordinary USP, you know, unique selling point about the human brain. It's quite incredible.
0: I was having a a, a Twitter chat uh, a year or so ago, maybe longer actually thinking about it because this year seems to have gone by quite quick, (laughs) Um, with Adam Rutherford. It was talk- he was talking about evolutionary psychology saying there just isn't a great deal of research into it, and what there is what what literature there is just appears to be I think the word he used was guff.
1: <laughs> and one of the problems with evolutionary psychology, as it has largely existed, is that there became a sort of a fashion. For it to be any that like people would have asked you, why does this happen? And there was literally even I saw someone give a talk about an evolutionary theory about why women were less good at surfing than men, and it was to do with spear throwing, and it was absolutely ridiculous. It's just are there? I mean, actually, women can surf. Are there any other reasons why women don't go surfing? And I think there is another way, and that is again to be let yourself. Let your, that's not how biologists study evolution. <laughs> Yeah, you know, they don't look at one thing and say, well, why does that thing look like that? It's probably this. We, we, it, we act more like biologists and we actually try and take a wider view on these things. So, for example, Robin Dunbar, who's done really interesting work about brain evolution and primate group sizes and primate communication, he has an evolutionary theory about the development of, well, one particular role for the development of human spoken language that he places in an evolutionary context, and he, you know, very roughly, he basically argues that it's enabled us to replace social grooming with talking to each other, which then lets us have much more brief and effective interactions with each other, and also have larger networks of people to communicate with, because we'd have to spend all our time grooming each other, and that's correlated with our larger brains. Now, there are issues with that theory, not everybody agrees with it, but that's an example of a beautiful evolutionary theory in psychology, that has, has generates a lot of interesting hypotheses, and he does a lot of work, kind of, you know, trying to sort of explore the edges of it. But so you can have really good evolutionary psychology um, that is not this oh why does why does that look like that kind of thing. It's much more of it, like, like looking at the systems and to, and drawing comparisons. Don't no, just don't just look at humans. I was listening to someone the other day who has a theory about why humans yawn, and it's all about he thinks it's about brain. Cooling, uh, maybe, but actually, we're not the only animal that yawns, and lots you of other animals do. And exactly. it's contagious,
0: even with the, across species.
1: Exactly, but dogs don't control their temperature with yawning, they control their temperature panting. with panting. You know, and we don't pant, so what's going on? You know, this kind of thing, and it's just so it really does help to have that broader view, I think.
0: I think being a human um, is wonderful, I wouldn't want to be anything else, um, apart from an eagle, I think they're amazing, or, or an otter. That'd be that'd be pretty sweet. I know yeah. you like otters. <laughs> I like otters. I like long mammals. <laughs> They're amazing. Um, being a human seems to come at a level, at a at a cost. I think sometimes there's a lot of mistakes in our being. And having said that, that's many many species. Lots of species get cancer, but not very many species will choke because their voice box is in the wrong place.
1: No, we are the only animal that can choke. It's an oh. absolute evolutionary trade off. So we have. The larynx, which evolved initially as a way of just of stopping things from falling down into our lungs and, you know, closing off the airway, in all other mammals and in human infants, it sits at the back of the tongue. Um, and hum- some other animals, like red deer, can move the larynx down, in fact, so it's, much, it's very flexible. Humans are the only animals, and once they get up into childhood and above, the larynx moves down and it is permanently lowered. So all of us can choke from a very early age and it's a complete kludge. It is a risk factor and a lot of people do choke. You know, I, I can think of at least two examples when I've been there and said it started happening. No, three. God, it's, it's not at all uncommon. And a lot of people die that way. The trade-off is we have the human voice and we use it for talking and that's unbelievably powerful. Mm. So it's a complete trade-off. We can We are the only animal that can die by this mechanism and we're the only animal that can talk.
0: That goes to show just how important communication has been throughout our, um, I'm going to have to say, evolution. Yep. It, it it really is invaluable. And what started off as just little noises to say, hello, I'm here, becomes this conversation that we can have here. It's incredible. And all the little bits in between the, well, I mean, typically things like laughter. One of the things that you've been studying for Decades and decades and more than likely probably a little bit sick of talking about but it is <laughs> Incredible that with this that we've we've got we've got this Peculiar um, mechanism to our ribcage and our and our, these noises that we make and uh, Looking at the videos of them. was it mice or rats that, rats that you can tickle? Is it rat? Yes. Of course, it's always rats you can do these experiments <laughs> and they're getting ready to be tickled and you haven't even tickled yeah. them yet, but they can see your fingers are coming, yeah. tickle, tickle, tickle. <laughs> and they start to giggle. I think, this is incredible. Why don't people talk about this more? I mean, you're doing a good job at trying.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think
1: that, um, I think there's two reasons why we haven't really paid much or anything like enough attention to laughter in science. I think one is that... um, Western psychology, which is still a relatively new science, very much kind of developed itself along the lines of trying to understand what, when I was an undergraduate, would be called normal psychology in a way that would help you understand what we called abnormal psychology. So um, we don't hear those phrases anymore, but still there's this idea that we should be understanding the the neurotypical brain or the healthy brain in a way that could help us understand when things have gone wrong. It's kind of built into a lot of what we do. And from that perspective, you can sort of see why studying studying emotions would often mean you might emphasise negative emotions because if you want to understand depression, well, we should know about sadness, and I want to understand anxiety, so I should know about fear, that kind of thing. And to the extent to which we have almost entirely used emotion processing in human Western psychology to mean negative emotions. You see very, very little research into positive emotions. But I think it's even bigger than that. I think there is an older... Western tradition of finding particularly laughter a bit, um, not serious, not proper. There was a, there was a real discussion, um, a few centuries ago about whether or not Christ would have ever laughed with a very strong view that Christ would not have done because it was a sort of childish, immature, lower behaviour.
0: And that's science, folks.
1: Uh, exactly. And, but it influences the scientists. So I think, uh, so if you go back to Charles Darwin's book about, the expression of emotions in man and other animals, he talks about a lot of emotions that he really got right. So he talks a lot about fear and anger and disgust and surprise and a lot of stuff that over the next 150 years, we really kind of pulled apart and found a lot of that he was right about. Mm. But he also talked a lot about laughter and we just ignored it. (laughs) And I think it's quite quite instructive actually to go back to his original um, text because he he gives beautiful descriptions of laughter and humans interacting with apes at London Zoo and the apes are laughing and then we just did paid no attention to it whatsoever and then over the last say 20 years probably a slight, slightly more a psychologist called Robert Provine in the US started to do work arguing that you really should pay attention to laughter it's an interesting behavior and it's not what you think it is he was the person to show that it's a social behavior not a not really much to do with amusement at all and people started to do more work with rats. So Panks slept with the rats in the US again, uh, sort of showing that it was behaviour associated with play and tickling. And there's been this uptick in it. There has been more and more work on it. So we're kind of getting there. It's still an uphill battle. So um, I can kind of tell... Even now when I'm talking to colleagues about, oh, you know, summer study or something, it's a laughter study. You can see them going, oh, you know, you might as well be studying tinsel or fairy lights or something else just ephemeral and silly. But I think it's probably, Darwin was right. It's probably one of the more important emotions that we express because Darwin thought it was an expression of joy. And I think the only thing that we've kind of added to that over the next 150 years or more recently is that that joy is a social joy. It's a social emotion. It happens in interactions, but the joy is still there.
0: If you look through what's happened through this year, through lockdown, all the the comedy radio programs and TV programs that haven't had an audience, the jokes are the same. The comedians are just as funny, but the jokes aren't as funny. They don't get the reactions. It just doesn't feel the same without an audience.
1: And I think, so last year, we published a study. It was a really good idea from my PhD student. We were trying to look at, like, how people process laughter. And she suggested, well, why don't we give people jokes? And we asked them how funny the jokes are. But then we add laughter and we see what difference that makes. So not quite like canned laughter, because it was just one person laughing that we added on. And we took terrible jokes because we wanted to see if we could improve them. And we got a comedian to read them aloud, like, really bad, really, real <laughs> bad. And he's really going for it. What's the best day for cooking? Friday mm. so we got people to rate the jokes, and they did not find them very funny, and then we got a different set of people to rate the jokes again. but now the only difference was we added laughter onto the jokes, and some of the laughter was people kind of faking a laugh ha 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 ha, and some of the laughter was really spontaneous and What we found was as soon as there was any laughter added onto the joke, people thought it was funnier, and the more spontaneous the laughter, the more joyful the laughter, the funnier it made the joke now. That's interesting. It doesn't tell you why. Is it because it sounds like someone else liked that joke? So maybe it makes you like it a bit more. Is it contagion? I mean, we don't know. But of course, it's completely what we've seen under lockdown, which is when the laughter is not there, the whole thing just feels flatter. And of course, it affects the performer. So I remember showing this result to a stand-up comedian, and his first reaction was, yeah, if I hear the audience laughing, I become funnier. Yeah. Because I know they liked it. It affects what I then do. So actually... The existence of laughter in a live comedy or, you know, where where a situation where you're expecting people to laugh. It's never just the joke is being broadcast and people react. The whole thing is an interaction and that builds and builds and builds. It's why people like seeing comedy with other people. It's why people want to see things live. I found one example of a comedian who recorded their, you know, their stand up set deliberately without an audience people always have an audience there because you get this energy and this interaction and that's part Mm. of what we start enjoying even if it's just vicarious
0: yeah uh, josie long throughout lockdown has has been has been doing something because she couldn't do the tour so i'll I'll do it in my flat yeah and and all the way through it she would say oh now this works better when there's an audience there's (laughs) no because there's no feedback now you've been involved in 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 stand up yourself actually did that start first or was your interest in sort of laughter side of psychology did that come first
1: no I, i've been studying laughter for a while um and oh gosh about 10 12 years ago ucl started this uh, public engagement activity where they ran these stand-up comedy nights called bright club and there would always be all the acts were academics and students from UCL, and then there'd be a couple of professionals. There'd be a professional comedian doing the MC, and there'd be a headliner who's professional. So, And they gave people training, and it was very popular. And I first heard about it, I thought, why would you do that? Why would you put yourself through that? That's really, you know, I've worked really hard. I've just been made a professor. I'm, I've not gone through all this to go and to go to a pub and have people not find me funny. So I was no, don't have anything to do with that. And then, um, this is not a story that sheds a good light on me. I um, was talking to one of my male colleagues. So someone about my little bit more senior than me, a similar age to me. And he was saying, have you done Bright Club? He said, I did it really well. I was very funny. Everyone thought it was very funny. And I thought, you bastards, you haven't even asked me. You asked him and he was brilliant, you know. So I was like, I'll do Bright Club. And then they, and then the next thing I knew, I got a gig box and I was like, why have I done this? i I'm, <laughs> again back. What I was the most anxious I can remember being since my PhD Viva. It was that kind of level of anxiety. And then afterwards, i thought i want to do that again and i want to do it better and because i soon when i was actually out there i could feel like for example the only way you can learn to let an audience laugh is to learn with an audience in front of you that when you get to the punchline or where you expect them to laugh you have to stop talking because if you don't stop talking they won't laugh because they want to listen to what you're saying and you have to leave a pause for them to laugh and then you have to pick up again if they don't laugh, you have to be like, so yes, that kind of, exactly like you're saying, the interaction, you, ha- you can only, think it must be the only thing you can only learn when you are actually doing it live. There are no rehearsals that actually get you to that experience. And then that kind of gave me the option or the opportunity to start thinking more about this kind of interactive space where you find comedy happening. And it is fascinating. It's like a laboratory for laughter and comedians are doing as much work with their management of that interaction and how they manage the audience laughter and the audience reaction as they are doing with the words that they're saying. So I'm not saying what they're saying doesn't matter, what they're saying absolutely matters, but the kind of, almost like a weird conversation has to be orchestrated well by the comedian and all sorts of... So the only real training they gave you at UCL, which at the time I thought was really strange, was microphone technique. They didn't really tell you what to say. They'd steer people away from being offensive, but they let you do what you wanted to do largely. Mm. The main thing they taught you was microphone technique because you you come out and the audience don't know who you are and you don't know what to do with the microphone. They will immediately stop laughing and they won't come back. You'll lose them instantly. They'll just think, oh, this person does not know what they're doing and I'm anxious and unhappy and I want to end. (laughs) So that kind of, you know, looking like you are going to be okay, looking like you're confident, like this is going to be all right, everyone can relax and enjoy it, that is as important as what you say
0: we've when when helping people with their confidence issues we talk about body language so much that if you you hold yourself in a certain position you're telling other people what's really going on and it's feeding back into yourself mm. and then your knowledge that they know that i'm uncomfortable now makes me feel more uncomfortable It's one lesson that I guess it's a lot of it is instinctive. We're not taught at a young age. Oh, if you're nervous, hold hold your hold your stomach like this. There's just this instinctive thing inside of us that says this is all soft. I don't want this to get hurt. You know, I'm going to cover this up, for example. And I'm going to if I puff my chest out, it means I I'm happy to be seen. You can see me and. Because of expectations, if you walk on a stage, because I know you're quite interested in theatre. Is that from a performance perspective or just from watching theatre and enjoying theatre like we used to in the old days?
1: (laughs) It's Mostly from the second one. So, I mean, I'm actually, you know, kind of like extending out from the audience um, and the comedian interaction. There's actually very good evidence that you get that kind of engagement between a performer or performers and the audience, even if there's nothing said at all. So people have shown that... Audiences watching modern dance performances start to kind of react together. So there's something coherent happening in that space. Like an audience agrees to shut up and let the performers do their thing. And then they become completely engaged in that thing and kind of controlled by that thing. So I think that I kind of went into it from comedy, but actually it's one of the things that we like from that live experience is to be there in the room, the breath in the room and to be part of that thing. And how that's actually managed, and what's going on in that space, and how performers guide it because they are largely guiding it. If things are going well, is really interesting. And of course, that things don't always go well. There's that love. Is it Peter Hall quote about the roar of failure? Yeah, like the noise audiences start making if it's going badly. They start rustling bags and coughing. And yeah, I've been there. So so I I think it's very, very interesting. There's something. It's again, it's a universal what the performance is varies from human culture to human culture, but the existence of performance and particularly of, you know, vocal performance is what I really care about, but actually it could be dance. It could just be music, but that's sort of, we want to be part of an audience that might, that is kind of involved in this, or we want to be the performer is very interestingly human. And like, and we will shut up and let somebody else do something very skilled in this way. We, we want to be part of it. And I think that, like you say, confidence is part of it. And then being able to see the confidence through by doing whatever it is in a way that is in some way engaging to people. Um, I mean, gosh, 30 years ago, I just met my partner, and he was really into Smiths and Morrissey. And there was a gig, a Morrissey gig, at Wembley Stadium. And I was not remotely interested in Morrissey, um, but I got his tickets, and I'd never seen anything like it. I had no idea he was just—you just, were going to get performed at. I thought he was just going to moan all evening. And I know he's not someone who enjoys a perfect <laughs> reputation, but as a live performer at that age, he was incredible. Wow! And I was like, "Oh, this is amazing." Now I see. Now I get it. I could have been hearing the music for years and never known that if I hadn't been there in that time in that unpromisingly large space. So there is something really, really meaningful about it. And I'd love if I had all the time and all the resources and we were not living under COVID situations. It's what I would really like to know more about that. What's happening in those rooms? What makes the difference between a, a performance where the audience and the performer completely become engaged or ones where they're kind of you know, rustling their bags and picking their coats up and starting to wish they could leave. You know,
0: it's difficult to make a formula out of these sorts of things um, because it sort of it, it sort of makes it very very scientific and obviously formulaic. But sometimes there there is. You know, it's that plus that equals that, and that plus that equals that. Don't do that.
1: Or even, um I mean, I don't know if you'd ever... I, I suspect, as you say, it would be much too complex to get to a formula, but you get little glimpses. So there was a study done looking at applause in audiences, showing that the thing that made it most likely that you would start clapping was if you were near someone who started clapping. And I suspect something like that happens with laughter. You get it kind of moving around. And then, then you get interesting interactions with the room that you're in and how people are seated. So large audiences... If you watch a comedian playing a really big gig, like somewhere like the, you know, the O2, they will not come out and do blah 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 blah. They will let the laughter build and happen, and then they'll come back and they will do things to keep the laughter going. But quite often, not even necessarily saying anything, maybe just doing little gestures to keep the laughter in the room. And when it starts to, you then move on to the next one. So they play at a completely different rate than if they were a room with 40 people in, where even if everybody laughs, it will die away quite quickly. So you need to be doing it faster.
0: It's like a Mexican wave.
1: Yeah, there's an element. There is something very, very striking about it.
0: I've been involved in amateur dramatics for long enough to know that sometimes you do need a plant in the audience to clap or laugh, you know, for the audience to get going and then give permission. The audience is quite small in the little theatre that I work in. We're lucky to fit 60 people into into the room. Mm. And when there's so few people... They don't know whether it's okay to laugh. They don't know yet. Yeah. And it might be quite a while until you've made the audience feel comfortable enough, depending yeah. on the sort of play you're doing or whatever, especially if it's a comedy or if, it, if there's a lot of breaking the fourth wall, which I get involved in a lot of, um, to be able to talk to the audience and mm. let them calm down. Okay. We're allowed to laugh at this now. Yeah. He's given yeah. us permission. And once they've got permission to, to, to laugh, they've got permission to be entertained and feel entertained and if we've got this mechanism that runs through our psychology that that's that clearly crosses over to everything that we do that mm. until we give ourselves permission to feel something we probably can't feel it how many times do toddlers kick off because they're in a bad mood and because they don't want to be in a good mood right now, and you can mm. show them all the right things and go, "Yeah, but look at Bob the Builder and look at this and look at that and they just don't want. That's not to- where I'm at, mum. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then quite the opposite, you give them if they're in a bad mood, but suddenly they do change their mind. Say they're tired walking through the town centre and you go, shall we go to the playground on the way home? Oh yeah. And suddenly they're bright because they've given themselves permission to be Mm. energised, permission to be happy and joyful. And I think when it comes to emotions, neuroscience for so long has focused on the negative ones because that's what people are interested in. What is that? Is that because that is what people are interested in or is it just where the money is?
1: It feels science-y, I think. It feels proper. It feels big. It feels, you know, we could justify this. We can, you know, we've got our, our model for how rat fear is processed in the rat brain and that's, you know, that we can then modify this and da 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 And I think positive emotions in general sound silly and trivial and pointless. So you could study neuroscience for your whole life and never know that people fell in love or enjoyed a meal or wanted to find something funny um, you know or looking forward to an evening of comedy or you know that that kind of it's just that as a motivational thing I think is just not not taken seriously and I think actually it probably should be I think um it's very interesting both in terms of it probably is a laughter is a, a reward in its own right it is a very rewarding behavior it's why people get quite hooked on doing stand-up comedy when you've had that that many people laughing it's sort of amazing it's a it's an unrewarded behavior because it is its own reward but there's even evidence that um and this is Robert Levinson's work from the US where he's been doing this very long longitudinal study just with people who live in the community near Berkeley in um San Francisco so it's a it's a community study looking at married couples over decades and he gets them into the lab and he puts them in stressful situations by asking them to talk about problems in their relationship and he measures their physiology and what with
0: the f- galvanic skin resistance monitor Yeah
1: exactly blood pressure breathing rate And everybody gets stressed out when they're asked to talk about problems in the relationship immediately. It's a stressful thing. That's what it's meant to do. But what he finds is that couples who deal with that stressful feeling with positive emotions, so that's things like laughter, also could be smiling, they get less stressed immediately. But only if they both do it. So both members of the couple have to be involved in it for it to work. If one person's laughing... It doesn't work you, you both mm-hmm. need to you're negotiating the mood change together basically but also they're the couples who stay together for longer and are happier. i was
0: gonna say if that's a longitudinal study that's fascinating to see what happens in their relationship as time goes on
1: so it's not that the laughter makes things better it's that couples who can use that together start to feel better and it's like it's like the laughter is an index of the relationship rather than a cause i suspect but they also have some interesting examples of health-related changes associated with this. Again, because they've had enough people over enough years. Because people don't only deal with the situation with positive emotions. Some people deal with it more passively. Some people deal with it with aggression. You do snore, so shut up. Can't, you know. Just, um, and what they find is that the people who deal with getting on top of the difficult situation... By using passive aggression or aggression, don't actually feel less stressed. Both members of the couple stay stressed. The people who use positive emotion feel better, get less stressed. So, both of those couples feel more, you know, the, that type, those two ways of managing the, the stress don't get less stressed. But there's also health related things. So, the people who use passive aggression tend to have more postural problems like bad backs. And the people who use aggression have more cardiac problems. Okay. And it suggests that because these are diff- there are lots of different ways of regulating emotions. You can just close stuff down. You can just dominate it with aggression. There are other ways that people use, you know, people, some people burst into tears when they're very stressed. And it ind- those all might all be ways of regulating that moment, that minute in time in that interaction and dealing with it such that you can, you know, you, you can feel like you can move on from it or whatever. But they're not equally good in the outcome. Fascinating. You know, so not all ways of regulating emotions are equal.
0: We're a proper mixed bag, aren't we? <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah.
0: So, Sophie, what's next for neuroscience? What does the future hold?
1: Uh, uh, for me, I think the next stuff is being able to look at people actually interacting, how we're doing, what we're doing now, and actually look at how our brains... None of this stuff ever... You can study language your whole life and never deal with the fact that it's our primary tool for social interactions. And, to do, of course, to do that is hard, and you need to start looking at the interactions, and that's the next step, I think. We're getting closer to that now.
0: People Excellent. so if people want to hear more about what you can bring to the universe uh, what would be the best place to, to stumble across you
1: um, you can find me on YouTube I tend to put things up on YouTube that I think might be interesting so I think I'm just Sophie Scott on YouTube um, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Sophie Scott, all one word on Twitter. If you want to just join my happy place, then find me on Instagram, which is also at Sophie Scott, where Instagram's where I, like, put nice pictures and I'm very calm. <laughs> that makes me happy.
0: And we mustn't, we mustn't forget the, uh, new romantics.
1: No, that's also true. I and the poet and writer Will Eves have a podcast called The New Romantics, as in new romantics, but new romantics. And every, uh, in episode, every episode, I give him a scientific paper to read and he gives me a poem or a book or a chapter to read. And then we try and sort of pull those apart. So we, we try and communicate about them. And actually, it's normally a way of having quite interesting, surprising discussions, which I, I greatly enjoy. So even if no one else is enjoying it, I enjoy that.
0: <laughs> Sophie, thanks ever so much for coming on to the show. Pleasure. And, Lovely talking uh, to you. Here's to the future. Likewise. Thank you very much top lady sophie scott i hope that tickled your academic interests and if you want to hear more from her i'll add some links into the show notes so you can watch some of her lectures i'll also link to her social media stuff obviously so i'll love you and leave you for today and i will be back in a couple of weeks pod fans see you soon